Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So, um, to be born in any given culture means to be born with a specific pair of glasses, right? Uh, a worldview, a set of a paradigm, a set of convictions and habits and customs and instincts even. And uh, every culture on earth um, provides a pair of glasses and each culture's glasses um, in some ways helps the ability to receive the gospel of God and in other ways it can actually hurt or hinder the ability to receive the gospel of God. Let me put some skin on that. Um, If you go to China to take the gospel, in general, and I'm speaking in broad strokes, right, because with every culture there's always a sort of array of specific instances and a range within it and people outside the norm. But in general, in general, the Chinese as a people prioritize the community over the individual. Sort of generally true of Chinese culture. They also believe that honor is a great good. So because of that cultural paradigm, when you take the gospel over there, as missionaries have and still do, and you explain that God is worthy of glory and actually you might have to deny yourself to obey him and sort of fit into his plan, that part, that part actually really clicks. Like, right, of course, you have to like, give up what you want for the greater good and for the honor of the great leader. That, that actually instinctively clicks. But then you try and explain, and you personally, existentially, have to put your trust in Jesus as your own personal savior. That part, and this is, I heard this from Carrie, who spent two years in China sharing the gospel. It's just like deer in headlights, like individually trust in Jesus. Like their cultural paradigm makes that part of the gospel difficult to hear. It actually is kind of foggy to them, right? And for us um, here in the United States, we also have a pair of glasses, but it's a different pair of glasses. So for us, when we hear about the radical equality that is created in the gospel, that in Christ Jesus we are all united and equal, that as Paul would say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, right? Because that very principle of equality is enshrined in our constitution and is um, sort of embedded in our culture, we're like, yeah, right, equality, of course, we, we get it. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's great, that is absolutely a value that we already come to the table with. But when it comes to the biblical um, imagery of priest, this is something which, as our culture, uh, that's our fuzzy bit, because we aren't conversant with the concept, kind of deep in our bones, of a priesthood the way a lot of other cultures are. I say all this because what I want to do this morning is really burrow into what is a priesthood, because if we don't understand the very category, we'll really miss the amazing argument of the letter to the Hebrews about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. So that's, that's kind of where, where I'm trying to go. Priesthood, this idea that there would be some specially appointed person who has some sort of special connection or mediatory authority between God and man, and right, it, it's an unegalitarian idea, right? That's why it's a bit kind of sticks in the craw of our American instinct. But it is exactly, um, actually in many ways, we culturally are the outliers. When you look across the world and across world history, Many, many, many cultures, almost all of them, in fact, prior to the modern era, 
have some deep sense of priesthood, right? I mean, think about what we all learned in school about like Aztecs and Mayans, even here on this uh, continent in Central America, right? They had their own priesthood with wicked, wicked sacrifices, but they had some deep sense that you needed a priesthood to make sacrifices to appease whoever was in control of the universe. Still today, if you go to Japan, right, they have their Shinto priesthood and the various sort of food offerings and rituals which you use to sort of curry the good favor of the benevolent spirit in the air. Right? So these two cultures, not all priesthoods are equal. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying this sort of instinct towards a priesthood. It seems like the Lord has sort of very deeply impressed on the heart of humans because every, so many human cultures kind of instinctively create this similar system. Um, of course, most useful for our understanding of Christ's, priest, Christ's priesthood, it's a mouthful, um, is the priesthood that God himself gave in the time of Moses to his people under the old covenant, right? Remember to Aaron, Moses' brother, God establishes him as the first high priest of a great line of priests who would offer the appointed sacrifices and offerings as prescribed in Leviticus and Numbers um, for the people of God. And even though this priesthood is the only one that pleased God until the time of Christ, all the others were just man-made, in essence, even the priesthood of the Old Testament has something in common with just priesthood generally. There's sort of an essence of priesthood, and we we have to conceive of that um, if we're going to, again, grasp what it means to call Christ the great high priest. Um, So priesthood, I think if you boil it all down from the Old Testament chiefly and corroborating with what we see across cultures... um, the priesthood is essentially constituted by five things. Uh, a special ordination, like some sort of appointment to that office. And then the whole office revolves around offering and sacrifice. The making of offerings uh, on behalf of a people and to the God. Right? The, the priesthood stands like on behalf of the people to the God and it's always made in a place of offering, which becomes the temple. Right? So let me say that again. So a priest is ordained to make sacrificial offerings as a mediator between man and God, and God and man, in a temple. Um, Now I said that this is kind of foreign to our culture. As as Anglicans, we actually have a tiny helper, a tiny stepping stool to try and grasp the priesthood of Christ. In that, um, it's become a convention to call whoever's the ordained elder a priest. Right? The old name for the order that I inhabit is not priest, it's elder. Priest was sort of almost like a nickname that got added on somewhere in the 4th century. The reason the nickname gets added on is because the church realized that there's a teaching tool in the midst of Christian worship that's on hand to teach us about the priesthood of Christ. Right? Because look at all of the shape of our ritual and liturgy. Is one guy, who's just one guy, just like I'm from the people, gets appointed to then come stand up front and and plead for mercy on behalf of the people from God. And then, of course, in the New Covenant, the only thing we can offer God is, as we say in our, in our liturgy, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And that's what we offer back to God now. We're going to come, this will make more sense as we get further into the sermon about Christ, the one true sacrifice. But we offer praise, but it's not all of us standing on the altar. One of us has been appointed, me, to say that on behalf of all of us, to say thank you, God, for the mercy of Christ Jesus. Have mercy on us. So we actually do have sort of a living little picture of what is priesthood. We actually do have a little bit of a, an inkling of it in how the ministry is exercised in this church. Okay, where was I? 
Ah, yeah, okay. We do. So having sort of looked at priesthood generally, um, listen again to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And I hope you can hear much more depth in it now, thinking about a priest as one making an offering to God on behalf of a people. But chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, Jesus, right, had to be made like his brothers, human, right, human being, in every respect. So we have here being described as the truth that before Jesus was born of Mary, God the Son was existing before all ages among the triune Godhead. And he, God the Son, right, had to step into space and time and be made like his brothers, us, in every respect. And the in every respect part is important. Something we can get missed is, this is a deep irony, we can actually put Jesus on the wrong pedestal by thinking that he was somehow different from us in that he was somehow just only God and just maybe looks like a man. That's one of the ancient heresies, actually. He had a human body. He had a human mind. He had a human soul and a human heart. Everything that makes us us, he had. Right? So he wasn't sort of just pretending to be human. He really was human. And that's why one of the points made in Hebrews chapter 2 is that he can empathize with us because he knows exactly what it's like to be a human being. He became one of us. He had to be made like his brothers. Mortal. Which raises the question when the scripture says that, well, why? Why did he have to? And the answer to that question is the truth that I'm really excited to share this morning. Why did he have to be made like his brothers? Verse 17 continues partly to answer, so that he might become a merciful, through empathy, and faithful high priest. And what do priests do? In the service of God, I'm just reading along, Hebrews chapter 2.17. In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, um, I'll track this logic with me. He had to be made like his brothers so that he could become a high priest. What's the connection there? What's the had to piece? It's actually kind of a complex answer. So I ask for all your attention to try and... because. if, you, if we miss even a step, it won't, it won't all hold together. There's kind of a few pieces that come together. So a sacrifice has to be made, right? This was what is revealed through the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, summed up in Leviticus chapter 17, that, which reads this, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Okay, so, so a sacrifice is needed to take away sin, revealing that embedded deep in the cosmos as God made it, is this sort of life-for-life principle, that sin, which takes away life, it's death, to sort of remedy it, life needs to be taken. That was the sacrificial principle. Like In the Old Testament, it was bulls and goats. There needs to be bloodshed to atone for sins. And we shouldn't ask, well, why does it have to be that way? That's in the mind of God. He made it that way, as revealed to Moses, and then ultimately in Christ Jesus. So blood is needed. Which raises the question then, what sacrifice, what spilling of blood could ever be big enough to atone for the sins of the whole world? Like every sin that you and I have ever done. I mean, just think about the horrible mass, even just with us 40 people, right? Every vicious thought, every lie, every lustful thought, every angry word, every misdeed, and then the whole world through all of history, right? It's this enormous, horrible pile of sins. And if we think about it on a scale, what could possibly tip that scale back? What could possibly satisfy the justice required for such a great quantity of evil? 
Um, no bull sacrificed is going to do that, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to go on to say, as we're going to hear in future weeks. Actually, the only thing that would be sort of balanced that would be the sacrifice of something as valuable as God. But how could God die because God's immortal, right? God can't be sacrificed because God can't die. No one can kill God. He's eternal and immortal. So what's to be done? We need something as big as God to make amends, and yet God can't die, but a sacrifice is needed. He had to be made like his brothers. Do you see? So when God becomes man, when the Son of God takes on flesh from the Virgin Mary, right now all of a sudden, God is able to suffer and to die. God the Son, right, in the person of Jesus Christ. Before the incarnation, God couldn't suffer and die. But when God becomes like us in every respect, what do we do most of the day? (laughs) Suffer, in many ways, big and small. And what do we do eventually, all of us? Die. So God had to be made like one of us so that he could be able to make the size offering that was needed to atone for the sins of the world. That's the logic of this passage. That's why it says he had to be made like us so that he could become a high priest. So when God the Son takes on human nature, that's his beginning of his priesthood. And at age 33, best we can kind of put together the dates of Scripture and the tradition, he goes to offer his sacrifice to God the Father. He is the great high priest bringing an offering. And what is his offering? Himself, right? This is one of the great mysteries of Jesus, is that he is the priest offering the one sacrifice that he made, and what's the sacrifice that he's offering? Is himself. He is both priest and sacrifice. Right? I mean, it's this mysterious, mysterious infolding and paradox. He is the one whose blood is going to be shed, and though it was ordinary human blood, it was also, because he was fully, fully God, the blood of God being shed. The blood of God. And that's why he can make propitiation, the word from Hebrews 2.17, propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is one of these churchy words. Sometimes the church sort of updates its language to be comprehensible to English, like um, uh, I can only think of weird examples from the Middle Ages. (laughs) Um, But uh, like Wycliffe called intestines belly ropes. We don't call them belly ropes anymore, so that got updated to intestines, right? But um, the word propitiation didn't get updated because no other word could say what that word says because it's a word that speaks of the dealing of sins on all sides, the satisfaction of God's justice for sins and the wiping away of sins in our life. What English word could do that? There isn't one. So we've just kept the word propitiation the making right of sins before God's justice and in our own lives, sort of on all sides. That's why the church is always... It's why we hear it in our, in our liturgy twice, actually, right? We hear it in the comfortable words and in the midst of the offering, the one oblation, satisfaction, and propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So in dying on the cross, right, which 1,988 years ago, Jesus Christ made the one sacrifice that was of such infinite value, because God is infinite, to atone for the sins of the whole world. He is the one mediator then between God and man. He's the great high priest. Now, when Jesus died, 
Jesus, who had a human soul, went down where the place where human souls go, to the place of the dead. But the, and the fathers speak wonderfully about this. They speak about hell being sort of horribly surprised. That like Jesus descends to the dead and they're like, ah, got another one. And it's like, oh, wait a second. And they kind of use this language, this poetic language of like rupture, like hell can't contain God. So hell has to spit God back out, right? Using the image of Jonah and the whale, right? That Jonah goes into the belly of fish and gets spit back out. That Jesus dies, goes down into the, de- the place of the dead, and the place of the dead can't hold him because he's fully God. So hell spits him back out, and he comes back out alive, raised from the dead and transformed, right? This is the Christian confession, what we say in our creed every Sunday. It can become a little too familiar if we don't stop and think about it, but he descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. And then what's, what do we say next in the creed? According to the scriptures, that's right. And then what's after that? Thanks, that's more close than I remembered. Um, what do we say after that? What did he do after he was raised from the dead? He ascended into heaven, right? So where is Jesus right now? At the right hand of the Father, seated in heaven. How long has he been there for? No, 1988 years, right? <laughs> because he actually, well, oh, actually, let me take it back. You're right, because he was there from the beginning. Okay, okay. Okay, you're right. That's actually a good theological clarification. So Jesus was there from the beginning. So in a way, we could say he's been there forever. How long has he been there inhabiting his human body? Thank you. I appreciate theological precision. How long has he been there in heaven? 1988 years. Since the day in May of the year 30. Again, best as we can put the dates together. He's been there at the right hand of the right. And even though it might sound impertinent to ask of our Savior, what's he been doing there for 1988 years? Pleading for us, right? He is the great high priest. He offered the one sacrifice of himself back in history, 1988 years ago. But the merits of that sacrifice, he's offering, he continues to offer, right? The priests of the Old Testament, they make sacrifices, they kill things, but they also just take bits of grain and they offer them to God and food and incense. He is taking his sacrifice and offering it to the Father. What does Hebrews 2.17 say? For the sins of the people. That he's still doing that. So, a hundred years ago, when all our great-great-grandfathers were on the earth, he was in heaven pleading for them. And now he's in heaven pleading for us. He is our great high priest. He is presenting to God the one thing which could balance out and atone for every sin that you and I have done and the whole world has done through the merits of his one sacrifice in history. He's our great high priest. And where do great high priests, where do priests make their sacrifices? Where? In a, in a temple, right? So on one hand, we could say, well, that he is in heaven, which is his temple, which is true. But where else in the scriptures, what else is called the temple of Christ? What else is called the temple? First Corinthians, that's your clue. His body, right, thank you. The church. His body, it says, it says you, and it, it's used twice, it says you individually are temples of God, and then if you, you know, if, we need to have a Bible translation that has the plural you, that has y'all in it, once and for all. <laughs> because the Greek makes a distinction between you singular and you plural. Greek, Southerners are smart like Greek. Because, you know, you've got to distinguish sometimes. And it says in 1 Corinthians, it says, Christ lives in you, singular, and then he says, you, plural, are his temple. Okay, so temple is the language of priesthood, right? So we are his temple, he's our high priest, 
which means when we gather together, he's in the midst of us as our priest. And what does he do when we gather together? What do we do every time we gather? We have communion, which is, what do we call it? A memorial offering, right? The other word is oblation. A memorial oblation of the one sacrifice once made. That with bread and wine, we remember, like the old bread and wine sacrifices of the Old Testament, that there was one great sacrifice which we are all indebted to. And we say, thank you for that sacrifice. We remember it before you, right? This is the, the words of the liturgy. We remember it before you. And we plead again for the propitiation that came from the one sacrifice. So communion, if I may speak strongly, is nothing in itself. It's everything, literally everything, as it's connected to the one sacrifice of Christ on Golgotha 1988 years ago. The one sacrifice that our Lord, our High Priest, is pleading for us to the Father right now. So, if we want to receive that propitiation, if we want to receive afresh that forgiveness of sins, right, to be united to say, that guy's our priest, we want him to intercede for us, that's what we do every time we take Holy Communion. There's a thousand ways you could do that in the midst of a day, but we really concretize it in Holy Communion together when we say, yeah, he's our high priest. There's no one else we're approaching God through. If we try and approach God outside of our Lord, um, the scriptures call God a consuming fire. If we approach the Father through Jesus Christ, he calls us brothers, right? That's the language of Hebrews. It says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. <laughs> this is amazing, <laughs> right? He's the God-man. He says, yeah, 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 you guys are my brothers. If you come, come to me, let me be your high priest. Seek forgiveness through me alone. Seek to be reconciled to God through me alone. You're my brothers. Let me keep interceding for you. Here's a token of my intercession that you can actually take into your own body as well as his indwelling spirit in our souls. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus Christ became incarnate to praise God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What a great high priest we have and what a great God we have who would send his son to be our high priest. To him be glory and praise forever and ever. Amen.